Hey everyone, James here. So due to a recent tragedy in my family, we decided to take a bit of a hiatus from recording, so we are presenting you volume three of the Demo Days. Enjoy. That was the J-Cut, this is the K-Cut, this is Rachel coming to you from day 11 of government-mandated quarantine. And here with me I have my two co-hosts, Andreas. Yes, this is Andreas. Uh, Thank you so much for for introducing us, Rachel. And we've got the other member of the K-Cut, we got James, who technically is the J in the J-Cut. How's it going? Uh, It's going good. You know, um, I was on lockdown forever ago. But Michigan's kind of op- been opening up progressively. I mean, I only had like four weeks off of work, which was kind of lame because I wanted more. But uh, movie theaters are open again out here. That's exciting. Over here, it's not. Yeah, I haven't gone to see anything yet. Oh, not even Tenet, though? No, I was going to. And then my wife ended up having to work the day we were going to go. And then uh, I was I was gone from Thursday last week till Sunday. And then we just haven't gone yet. So... I, I'm planning on going to see it soon. I want to go see that and New Mutants. But yeah, I just haven't been able to get out there because things are kind of crazy right now. Yeah, well, in Toronto, um, I work at TIFF, like as cinema staff. And yeah, the theater is just, they were on the verge of opening and wave two happened. So yeah, no such luck. So at least you've got theaters while you still can. So uh, enjoy it because they might close. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of curious. Um, let's see. AMC Theaters just announced that anyone can rent an entire theater to themselves for 99 bucks. Yes, I Ooh, saw I know that. What I'm doing for birthday. Oh, well, here, here. Before we get into our topic, let's think about this. What film would you subject your friends and loved ones to if you could rent out an entire theater? You could make it pleasant. You could make them have to deal with some weird stuff. What would you subject them to? Uh, Rachel, do you have any ideas? It depends how mean I'm feeling. Um, yeah, I'd probably bring a bunch of plastic spoons and show them the room. I'm sorry, friends. Oh, but see, that's courteous. That's nice. That's like actually like that. That's gracious, and you give them a really you give them a hell of a time. Like I'm sure the room doesn't show in theaters that big. It actually does once a month in Toronto. The Carlton's not as big as AMC, though. That's true. That's true. I forgot about so that. So you would you would see Tommy Wiseau's butt at like. 100 feet high like it would be way too big to be seeing that i mean doesn't the world need that though yeah fair enough uh james what would you show i don't know i think it's there's just so many options it's like you know how it it really is like it's almost like it it depends on what i'm feeling that day but uh honestly you know i'd probably go like super out there i'd probably do peter jackson's bad taste Nice. Oh, wow. So, like, not even, like, a well-known film of his, just, like, a cult film of his. That one, just because of how ridiculous it is. Okay. Uh, that's not the one with the lawnmower to the face. That's Dead Alive, right? That's Dead Alive. Yes. I don't think I've seen Bad Taste. I saw it once years ago, and it was just so bizarre. And by the end of it, I was like, what did I just watch? <laughs> and it's kind of funny because Peter Jackson just sort of... He's had a really interesting career because it's like he's super famous for Lord of the Rings. But it's like if you watch any of the other movies he does, like um, I'm also a really big fan of The Frighteners, which most people probably haven't seen. And I was like, yeah, this dude's kind of out there. Like everyone knows him for this this big grandiose thing he did. But like, nah, like watch the other stuff he's done because he's he's definitely got interesting taste. I honestly like early Peter Jackson better than Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. 
it, he just has this unique sort of scrappy quality to his work that really comes off well. I don't. I really liked that. Um, I forgot what the name is that uh, war documentary he just did. Oh, um, oh, the the recolorization. What was it called? I know what I think it's like. They shall be remembered or something like that. Yeah, well, when I like saw that. it, because I got to see it in theaters, and at the end they did a half hour featurette on the making of it, and it's really? quite impressive. Wow. Yeah, well, because all the film wasn't at normal speed. It was all high speed film that it was all at uh, higher frame rates. So they actually had to slow all the film down and like adjust the speed in order to get the natural flow of it. And then there are actually camera movement style movements in the in the in the finished product. Everything was a still shot and it's all like zoom and automated like movement that actually makes it like, you know, actually look like it was like an actual camera person walking around and like moving around, but it's really just all of them were still shots and they just zoomed in and automated all these movements. And then they also did, um, they actually went as far as to whoever they could identify. They figured out the exact region they were from and got voice actors to in, in their actual vernacular to like overdub over these scenes. And then he also, because he has like this ridiculous stock of memorabilia from that war, he was actually like shooting off cannons and other stuff to get actual like sound effects from that era. That checks out for Peter Jackson. Yes, it does. Why don't you show that then? That sounds like an absolute must for a lot of people. I mean, I've seen it and it's excellent, but like for those who haven't, when did you write out a theater for that? bring that story up to life but then again it's your choice right but yeah it's just it's really interesting when i watched it i was just like oh wow because i what all the time i was watching it was like this it's impressive the lengths he went to make this like you know this restoration like no one had ever done before yeah and he greatly succeeds um what would i pick though uh should i be like mind opening like introducing people to something of quality or should I be a poop disturber that gives everybody a hard time? Why not both? Why not both? Okay. So I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with uh, a seven and a half hour epic known as Satan Tango, which is a product of, (laughs) of um, Bayatar and is basically an existential dread uh very slow moving but it's one of the most gorgeous films as depressing as it is that i've ever seen it basically you feel like um are either of you familiar with it or no i saw bits of it once but i haven't seen the whole thing oh which parts did you see oh it's something Um, i can't honestly it was many years ago but it was like for demonstrating some it was like a few minutes long and it was 10 years ago but (laughs) Fair enough. A good chance it might have been the opening scrawl with uh, with the cows. But uh, yeah, basically it moves like you're in limbo and you're in this like you're in this hell of a world trying to escape it. And it's so hateful, but so glacial. So, you know, on one hand, it's it's exquisite. On the other hand, um, not everybody is me and wants to watch this thing. But it's like, well, ninety nine dollars. We're getting our money's worth. Technically, it's how much an hour? Like, not much. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that is definitely a deal. Honestly, if I if I didn't pick the one I'd pick, I would pick, and uh, I would actually pick. Uh, have you guys seen the movie To Wong Fu? Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. No, I haven't, but I've heard it's good. It's it stars Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo, and they play—they all play drag queens. 
and they're on a road trip to this drag competition. I forgot where, and they end up making a stop in a small town because I I don't know if it was their car breaks down, and then they just kind of get involved in the like community, and there's just a bunch of shenanigans, and it's it's a pretty wild movie. But I just like it just because it's like you pick three dudes who are like known as typically very masculine characters, and then you have them play drag queens, and they pull it off very well. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I I think that that would be an interesting one to show. There you go. I think that would be great. But speaking of films, because we could discuss what we would show in these theaters all day. Maybe that's a topic for next week. I don't know. But today's topic is actually something else, still film related. Rachel, what are we discussing? We were talking about creators, different actors, directors, and writers, and we decided to talk about which one had the most influence on you or a significant influence on you. That could be anybody from any era of film history, any country, any role, whatever it is. Um, Andreas, would you like to give us yours? God, well, I have a number of different ones, but I want to narrow it down to just one. And obviously, taste is defined by so many because I believe, and this is a topic for another day, each of us here, and I, I feel safe at saying this, we could make like a top 10 or like a top 50 or top 100 influential filmmakers. We absolutely could. But if it's just one and it's the defining of taste, off the top of my head, my favorite is Ingmar Bergman. But I can't say that he defined my taste because my taste led to him. I was like, okay, I identify this because of what I liked before. And... It's like, how much further back does this go? And my answer is actually very strange, because the furthest back I could go, it's a fantastic filmmaker, but not a great film at all. But I remember being young, like about 12 or so when this came out. And obviously Spider-Man was big. Uh, X-Men was already happening back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I just assumed, you know, comic book stuff, that's going to be fine. And that's my very first time I was introduced to Ang Lee. And there was Ang Lee's Hulk. And there was something about it, because it's not a very good film. But when I was younger, first off, it's imaginative, right? Uh, The way that he tried to make it look like comic book panels, uh, especially with the editing. Like, everything seemed so frame-like, and things would cut in as if they were flat images again very comic book like but it wasn't even just that it was something to do with like the tone and the pacing which i know aren't excellent but even if they were good they're of a different nature than say sam raimi's spider-man so it's like what is this strange feeling that i don't necessarily have stuff exploding in my face it's not necessarily like what Spider-Man was, all flashy and stuff. This feels different, and I don't know why. And obviously, shortly afterwards came Brokeback Mountain. Um, But even before that, I just kept wanting to find what that was. And at first, you know, reading the reviews, it's like, is this just a product of a bad film? Am I curious about a bad film? But I kept trying to chase that artistic side of it, which is not an artistic movie by any stretch, but when you're 11... And your frame of reference is either Lord of the Rings, which I guess is also an example given Peter Jackson, as we've discussed, Harry Potter, uh, or again, Spider-Man. You don't really have a big frame of reference for this type of stuff. So I kept wanting to find 
the stuff where the environments overtook the acting or the tone of the movie was more important than superstars, even though the cast was excellent with Eric Bana, Jennifer Connelly, etc. But it wasn't even about that. It was like, I want to feel this again. And that became my quest to keep finding stuff like this, only to be reminded down the road, obviously with Life of Pi, uh, Brokeback Mountain, Ang Lee could make great films. And then obviously I worked backwards as well, you know, with A Sense of Sensibility, etc. Oh, Crouching Tiger, obviously, was one of the next places to go. And even though I discovered a lot of that stuff after he had shaped my taste and like what I was looking for, it was great to return to see him doing this well, but still that same mystique that he made me try to search for these films was something that was indescribable, whether they're good or bad. And so I've got to go with Ang Lee because he introduced the side to a genre I was already familiar with, but maybe want to continue this lifelong quest of finding films that made me think beyond just the stars, beyond just the story. And the film's not, not good by any stretch, but it's where it all started. I've got to be honest. Wow. Well, wow. my thought about, about Lee is that there are many directors who can do a good movie. They can make a great movie, but he's the kind of director who can do anything. The films yes. you've listed could not be more different from each other, but he somehow manages to pull them off in their own unique style. That's not just him projecting his own style. Like, can you imagine if, say, Quentin Tarantino did all of those films? I They would all be insanely specific in style and they would not be as distinguishable. But like people are giving him a hard time doing Star Trek alone. So like, can you imagine if he tried to do something else? Like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's definitely because um, honestly, I haven't really dug too much into Ang Lee myself. I think the only ones that I can pinpoint that I remember watching are Hulk and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I think Crouching Tiger came first because I think I saw it not too long after it came out on home video. And it's really impressive the lengths he went in that movie to replicate. You know, historically, what a lot of the cinematography and choreography of kung fu films before it came from, and I used yeah. I used to be obsessed with kung fu movies. Like I would, any chance I got to see one, I would try to watch it. And it's it's really it was really hard for me to actually say there was a bad one that I'd watched because it's like there's just something so striking about the camera work and the choreography and just the culture of Asian film in general is just really amazing when it comes to storytelling because they have so much to pull from, but also like just the style in general, like the settings or the wardrobe. It's you know, they're, they're very much about style and they make it very obvious. And then just for him to do the kind of like a modern take on that is it was really striking. Uh, especially because you know the cast he had too and it's just yeah it i i challenge any other director to even attempt that because we really haven't seen that since then surprisingly i i, I would assume it would have happened it's a tribute to the wuxia genre which is a mixture of the martial arts and like mytho- mythological elements hence why you know they're flying through the air and all of that and like the, the romantic side of it but it was a tribute which first off hasn't been bested outside of what Zhang Yamao has come with with House of Flying Daggers and Hero, but Crouching Tiger's still better. But not only that, it's arguably one of the best of the genre in history. Like, top five material for sure. Like, he nailed it with that film. And that, that to me, is like the sign of an expert filmmaker. It's not just a tribute. It's one of... It's, it's, among, it's, it's among its peers. It's so good. But enough about Ang Lee. We love the guy. Rachel, who is your selection for the, the filmmaker that has greatly defined you? Uh, well, mine's not a filmmaker. It's an actor. Okay. Um, she, okay, you cannot 
talk to me about film ever for more than a few minutes without hearing about Katherine Hepburn. I knew it. <laughs> you, of course you knew it. Yeah. So she, um, I first became interested in, in her films when I was 12. I was, I was about 12 and it was, I was getting into classic film. It was a year or so after she died and Kate Blanchett had just won an Oscar for playing her in the aviator. So she was kind of in the, in the news at the time. I read her autobiography. I read many biographies of her and just went from there. One uh, movie that immediately comes to mind is Summertime. And it takes, it's 1955 directed by David Lean, a very early film of his. And she's a spinster. She's this, lonely this was her whole spinster phase in the 50s and she was this lonely woman traveling from akron ohio to venice for and it's her first trip overseas and she's ready to discover the world and of course she not only discovers venice but also rosano brazzi and somehow hepburn turns all this woman's pain and all of her loneliness and even though this story's been done a hundred times she manages to channel it into this very affecting story and you see everything that goes into her deciding to have an affair with Bratzi. Sorry for the spoilers on a 55 year old movie. <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs> and it, it changes her as a person. And I can really relate to that um, discovery of the world coming from a small town and moving to larger cities in Canada and later abroad. Hepburn's journey is always hers and it's always her choice. And she's always the one who controls it. She is in the driver's seat. And that is, I guess, what makes her appeal to me. Yeah, because you have, um, you know, her early stuff when she was doing screwballs or romantic dramas, but then her later career, which I think a lot of people identify with, if they're not like very savvy with the older stuff, you know, you've got like The Lion in Winter on Golden Pond, like, you know, a lot of very recognizable, dramatic, meaty roles. I mean, she she could really do everything, but she was able to bring like a like an organic quality, like a tenderness to every role, even when she was being savage, like in um uh Lion in Winter, for instance. Um, like as much as I love Peter O'Toole, and he's one of my all-time favorite actors. You she can't help it. but side with her. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like, well, yeah. you got to go with the queen. She has this fire and vulnerability to her all at once. And I think you can see that very well in uh, not just her later films, but for example, there's, have had, uh, any of you seen Stage Door? I no. have not. Okay, well, it's her, Ginger Rogers, and a bunch of uh, other actresses, Lucille Ball, Eve Arden, and they all live in this boarding house. They're all trying to become actors on Broadway. And they keep failing and falling over and getting up again. And she's the spoiled rich girl who's becoming an actor to upset her rich dad. And she's awful and everyone hates her. And then at the end, something sad happens and it brings out her vulnerability and it brings her into this beautiful performance. And only she, I think, could have pulled off that transformation from becoming this jerk and turning into not only a good actor, but a better person. Um, you would know this better than anybody. Uh, was that the first film that she won an Oscar for? Because I always forget what it is. No, Morning Glory, which was essentially the same story three years earlier and with no Hayes Code. So it was more fun. Well, that that's why it sounded so familiar. Okay, but it's it's not stage. Okay, it's not um, Morning Glory. It's, it's stage door. Uh, but it, that was around the time that she was like having her first. Because uh, she had a bit of a career dip and was considered poison, which how ironic is that? Uh, possible yeah. greatest actress of all time. 
Stage door was kind of the dip, but have you, if you've ever seen the list of box office poison, like a lot of great actors were on there. So <laughs> it seems like it was a good thing for all of them anyway. But yeah, that was during her dip. And then she came back with the Philadelphia story, which again played on the same dynamic. She was this jerk who got, became vulnerable. There's some toxic messages in there, but it's the same basic line. Yeah. Um, James, how familiar with Catherine Hepburn works are you? Uh, not very Still have yet to dive into her works. I'm I'm trying to make my way backwards in film, but given my current schedule of content creation and work, I have zero time to watch like anything. And Fair it's, enough. I, it's honestly been really frustrating because I'm like, man, I got to watch movies, but I don't have time because it's like sitting down to watch a film takes so much attention. Yes. That's like, I only have so much time to accomplish X amount of things I already have to do. But yeah, I have so many movies just of my Criterion Collections stuff alone that I have to still watch, especially because like for my birthday this year, my wife got me the Bruce Lee uh, Greatest Hits box set and the Godzilla set. And then last year I had my parents get me the Ingmar Bergman set, which I still haven't watched. And I'm like, oh, I already have like several dozens of movies I have to watch on top of the single editions of other Criterions that I have. It's like, man, three box sets alone. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh yeah, but yeah, I've been try I've been trying to set aside time eventually to get more backwards into more classic stuff because that's typically pre mid sixties is where my cutoff is for most media. Okay. See, I'm your exact opposite. <laughs> it's it's like it's it's not really intentional, it's just it's more so the framework in which a lot of stuff was made is just doesn't gel with the kind of styles i'm into like it's very pristine you know all the sound stages and all that it's like that's not my thing but i do appreciate them because that's where some of the best performances come from because it was more it was more or less it was like a translation of what a stage show would be exactly and you can see in the early talkie years just how much difficulty they were having not being stage actors it's it's really fascinating to watch yeah, so for the historical side of things, it, it is fascinating. Um, I'm currently going backwards as well. Uh, I guess for our, the decades list that I'm doing, I'm almost on the 40s. I'm starting the 30s very soon, and I've already bumped into some silent films because, you know, in the States, talkies had started, but like in China and in Japan, they were still doing some silent stuff. So it's going to be interesting once I get there. But I'm guessing that nothing before the 60s is going to be what you're going to discuss, James. Who was your biggest influence on your taste? Okay, so I'll, I'll give you the name of my biggest influence, but I'm going to kind of tell more backstory on just how I got into film in general, because there's a couple different phases that led up to it. But I'd say the person who had probably the biggest, the, the most significant impact was uh, Darren Aronofsky. Okay. So, but before that, it's I've had a really interesting relationship with film growing up because it was like, I mean, I think when I was younger, younger, we didn't go to the movies too much, but we went to the movies enough. But there was always a there was a video store not too far from our house and we would kind of rent whatever. And I think the first one of the first films that really struck a chord with me, and I'm pretty sure I was like nine or ten or I don't know. Um, don't it was somewhere around that age. Huh? Don't tell me it was Requiem. I'm actually going to talk about a film that's not his. Like the oh. first film that really struck a chord with me in general that was kind of like out there and just kind of hit me different was actually a Vincenzo, uh, Vincenzo Natale's Cube. Yeah, mind you, I'm a little kid and somehow that movie had an effect on me. As bizarre as it is, there is just something about it. 
And then when I was around 13, I watched uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead and oh. was just obsessed with that movie. And I actually happened to find it just in like parents' old stuff. And he had my dad happened to have the, have the VHFs of it. And I just like watched it all the time. But um, say around 2007 is when I think it was 2000, it was either 2007 or 2008 when I found out about Darren Aronofsky. And uh, that was when I kind of blew through the typical, you know, generic, I'm a, I want to be a cinephile starter pack. You know, I was watching like Fight Club and. You know, uh, Don, um, Saints and American Donnie, Psycho. Uh, what's it called? Donnie Darko. Well, that's actually funny you say that because uh, I happened to get some money from something. I don't know. At what point I got a little bit of money, I went to Best Buy and I bought, I don't know if it was three or four movies, but I bought Pulp Fiction, Donnie Darko, and then I bought Requiem for Your Dream, but it was a two-pack that included his first film, Pie. Ooh. Okay. Of course, I, I had seen Pulp Fiction previously because it would be syndicated on VH1 and whatnot, but I hadn't seen the other films. So I watched Donnie Darko, and obviously, high school me loved it because it's Donnie Darko, and that's just kind of what you do in high school. Yeah. And then uh, I watched Requiem for a Dream, and I thought it was amazing. And then I put in Pi, and that was the film that really, really hit me hard. And also, like, that was a film that made me think, I want to make films one day, especially because it kind of like, I noticed that I saw this pattern of me liking independent films. And then I took special interest to no budget films like pie, but just the fact that somebody could create a narrative that dense on a shoestring budget and just the visual style itself, you know, it's just, it's like part surreal and it's like a psychological thriller. And that really kind of like informed me what my taste of things would like, I would take interest in from then on because it's like, I always have this appreciation for films like that. It's like they have to be a little bit out there, but I don't, I think anything with kind of like a noirish element is something I'm always drawn to for some reason. And just this sense of like, he's constantly paranoid and doesn't know what's going on. And then like, as it's going through the story, it's just like, you know, I just love stories like that. It's like, that's why I think, you know, I, it kind of drew me to more where I found appreciation where I really like seventies films because there's so many films that take on that dark narrative and just this, the 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 gen it's almost this generic you know male existential crises yeah like neo-noir but also like the like you know the breakdown of this existential crisis and breakdown of the male psyche for some reason i'm just drawn to movies like that and i don't know why it's like that's why i love like taxi driver or like chinatown and just stuff like that for some reason it's just those movies really seem to hit with me not for any like reasons that are relatable it's just i think i'm so enamored with the style that it's just you know it's really easy for me to pass on anything else just to watch those kinds of things yeah aronofsky for me as well when i was younger was um i saw requiem maybe like 2005 uh so yeah for me as well was like this big thing where it's like hang on a second i need to discover more but there really wasn't that much at the time but um, once the wrestler hit and Black Swan hit, that's when I knew that this was going to be an auteur that I was going to be obsessed with. Um, he hasn't really matched anything since. I don't outright hate anything of his, but um, still, uh, I personally think al- alongside with you that Pi is one of the great um, American indie films that I think I've ever seen. And um, a lot of its detractions, like the low quality filming, the small sets, are used as highlights almost. And that's, that's where it's truly special. Um, uh, Rach, what do you think of, of Aronofsky? 
Um, with Aronofsky, I'm not as familiar with his filmography as you guys are. Um, I'd say that even when he misfires, he still has this, uh, even, even when the film doesn't come off as good as it could be, it's still really distinctive and it's still, um, like for example, when I, I think of mother and mother was kind of God awful, but then at the same time, I loved mother. I don't yeah, know why. It was just something it's about completely it. Completely awful, crazy, and I can completely respect that. To me, Aronofsky just always seems to not resonate, but sort of make an impact, even when the film's not so great. So he's provocative to some degree, whether it's through being reviled or um, revulsed, rather, or uh, you connect. So, yeah, I definitely see that as well. Well, I also, I also like how it's like. He's one of the few directors, I I would say, honestly, since Hitchcock, who can actually provide a narrative that initiates pure terror without being a full on horror movie. Like he has some stuff in his movies where I'm just like, like even when De Palma was like, you know, he because De Palma is the only one who ever goes full Hitchcock in his movies. But you can tell it's homage. But with Aronofsky, it's like he has this characteristics, the characteristics about the way he implements terror is just like. This isn't a scary movie, but this is frightening. It's like, you know, how how Requiem for a Dream plays out. It's like, this isn't a scary movie, but I definitely would not want to be in the shoes of these characters ever. No, especially when like your refrigerator is coming to life because you're having a terrible, um, a terrible diet pill addiction. Yeah, that's uh, it's not a horror film. Jesus, it, it, it verges on that territory for sure. Um, and it's horror matches to strike really deep, like. For Black Swan, I will never, ever forget the imagery of Natalie Portman ripping all the skin off her. Uh, I, I can't even go there. Ooh. And just going back to all the all the psychological and body horror he managed to pack into that one little film. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, he he really is really good at that. But at the, in that same breath, it never feels exploitational because um, first and foremost, he rings out some of the best performances any of these performers have ever committed to whether it's Natalie Portman or Jared Leto or Ellen Burstein, how many decades into her career and still churning out her best performance, which is saying a lot to making one of the Wayans brothers tolerable. I think it's pretty crazy that um, he's able to do that, but that also transcends into the performances. So it never feels exploitational. Like these people are being tortured. You're just getting fantastic performances by committed performers and it's it truly is something else i think it's also just like he it's almost like puzzle pieces like the people who puts in his movies like there's not a single actor that could have been in the wrestler other than mickey rourke <laughs> true because i mean if you think about it it's almost like i wonder if he like channeled some of his own personal stuff into that movie because it's like you know mickey rourke hasn't really had the best career as of lately mm. at least in the past decade i mean he did kind of have a little bit of resurgence with uh What's playing what's his name in Iron Man 2 but other than that it's like you know and I recall his performance from the wrestler was kind of a surprise to people at the time it was sort of Mickey Rourke can do that yeah I know and he got robbed too like jeez he deserved the Oscar I'm sorry Sean Penn but he deserved it yeah like Sean Penn was fine but come on what did he what did he win for that year uh, milk. Uh, milk oh I was about to say was it for milk because I loved milk and I loved his performance in that oh man I don't know it's really hard to say because I think it's like it's really hard because it was both such masterful performances that it's like, I would, I would give a tie to that one. I mean, I, I, I would have to say though, that Aronofsky's probably 
over the course of his career, I'd say is better than Gus Van Sant, mainly because oh yeah, Van Sant's either hit or miss. That said, Van Sant has pulled off some really cool stuff, like My Own Private Idaho. Oh, he has. Yeah, My Own Private Idaho is fantastic. Um, Drugstore Cowboy is fantastic. Uh, Elephant is challenging, but fantastic. Oh, I love um, Elephant. Oh, yeah, it, it's great, but it's not one of those ones where I feel comfortable. Hey, here's a film about school shooting. You guys should check it out. Like, it's really hard to sell to people, you know? It was like years after Columbine. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it's, like, basically inspired by Columbine. So that Isn't makes it like a Something like that? I think it wants something. Some big prize. Anyway, it clearly resonated. Oh, Elephant, Elephant won the Palme d'Or. Oh, it did. I okay. so. yeah. Well, it fully deserves that. I think it's an excellent. It, it was. I, I think. I think it was also a unanimous vote Palme d'Or too, if I remember correctly. That that is some prestige right there. But speaking of recommendations, those were some of our selections of filmmakers or performers that have inspired our tastes. Please let us know what your selections are in the comments when you hit us up. But before we go, we got to make some film recommendations. Rachel, what do you, what are you recommending to listeners this week? Hmm, Well, if we're going back to Hepburn, then I would absolutely recommend long days journey into night. It's a three hour long uh, Eugene O'Neill play about a drug-addicted mom played by Hepburn and some ho- her horrible sons and husband played by Ralph Richardson, Dean Stockwell, and Jason Robards. And the family just falls apart over a long, terrible night. Put an evening aside, watch it. You will come out feeling terrible, but you won't regret it. That sounds fantastic. Robards and Hepburn, count me in. Uh, Jason, or James, sorry, I was thinking Jason Robarts. <laughs> I'm so sorry. James, <laughs> James, uh, what would you recommend? <laughs> Not Jason Robarts, RIP, unfortunately. I'll go with The Warriors. Okay, cult classic. That was a, that was like a movie I used to watch as a teenager, just loved it for some reason. There's there just something cool about it. I think it's just, a, it, it's such a, a movie. It has like, it has kind of like a slow, it, it's very like fast paced in the beginning, and then once you get to like where everything kicks off, it's kind of like slows down a bit. But then it's like from there, it's just like this onslaught of like they have to make it back home. Otherwise, bad stuff's going to happen. And it's just also has one of the coolest scores that I've ever heard. OK, there you go. So you've got two completely different decades there. I'm kind of feeling an 80s film myself, but not a typically 80s film. I'm going with um, Juzo Itami's Tampopo, which is possibly the greatest film about food that I've ever seen. Known as a ramen western, kind of a, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the spaghetti western. It's a series of vignettes alongside a story about cooking up the perfect ramen. At the same time, it's a very tongue-in-cheek, silly film about the creation of food. But at the same time, it is virtually impossible to finish this film without wanting to eat something, whether it's from the film or just food in general, it is the greatest film about food, which is appropriate for the time in between Canadian and American Thanksgiving. So if you want to get hungry, there's your film. Fantastic. Yeah. Let's check that out. Yeah. Tampopo is, is a great eighties film, but that's it. That's everything from us. Those are our picks. And that essentially was the K-Cut. So now this is the L-Cut. Take care, everyone. Bye.